Hi, everyone. This is Anthony Diaz with The Pop Health Show. And this show is for anyone that has a strong passion for making people healthier in this world. And I'm really enthused and excited to have Dr. Clifford Goldsmith on the show today. So Dr. Clifford Goldsmith is the U.S. CMO, the U.S. Chief Medical Officer for Microsoft. Uh, he's done a lot of incredible things. He's doing a lot of incredible things. Uh, he's just an awesome person to have on the show, an awesome person in general. Um, Dr. Goldsmith, not to put too much pressure on you, but welcome to the show, and I'm glad we uh, made time to do this. Anthony, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here, and I, I'm looking forward to this. I'm looking forward to this discussion, so thank you very much. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. To- absolutely, absolutely. And uh, no, same here. And you know, I guess to kick us off and get us started is maybe to throw us back, you know, maybe take us back or teleport us back a little bit to describe, you know, what, what series of events went on through your life that led you to become the person you are today. And uh, I guess said another way, tell us a little bit about your, your origin story. Sure. I'd, be, I'd love to. So <laughs> I, you can hear my accent. Right. Uh, it's, it's not a United States accent. Um, I've been in the United States for 30 years. But uh, my accent is South African. I grew up in South Africa. And I, I think probably the most formative thing for me uh, in, my, uh, in my entire life, actually, was to stand up against a, a terrible system mm-hmm. of uh, supremacy in South Africa, of uh, uh, the, the apartheid system. And I know a lot of people know about it, uh, but, but in, I, I grew up in that era, and so it... it it really drove me to to want to see to to fight for equality, mm-hmm. for, to fight for human rights. But it actually had a very interesting uh, additional perspective that is relevant today to me. Um, I went to medical school, so I finished school, high school in uh, in, uh, in Johannesburg, South Africa. Went to medical school at the University of the Witwatersrand or Wits University in Johannesburg, and studied medicine. Uh, it's different to the U.S. system. Uh, you don't do an undergrad and then a, a post a doc or postgrad. Uh, you do you spend six years and get one degree or two degrees in surgery and internal medicine. And then I, I went on to specialize in internal medicine after that. But during my time as a student, uh, one of the impacts of apartheid was that uh, the medical education was totally geared to the first world elements of South Africa. So South Africa, the the apartheid system created this enormous disparity between a first world system that aspired to be like the Western world, to to be like the United States, and a third world system that uh, really uh, catered, was uh, was targeted at the people, indigenous people, black people, colored people in South Africa. but, but the medical education was just as, as with everything in society, there was this discrimination. And so the medical system discriminated. And in fact, we were trained uh, during, uh, as doctors for the first world aspects of medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, what that meant was that as, a, as, as students who were fighting for equality, we actually took that equality fight right down to the level of healthcare education. And and we demanded uh, as students that there were uh, that there was an education that was relevant to South Africa, that was relevant to all the people in South Africa, and that meant providing what we called at that time community medicine. And so we we there was we 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 really pushed very hard as students 
to get a true community health or community medicine education, which meant considering health in the light of population elements or societal or socioeconomic and political elements. And so it, it led to thinking about things like sanitation, uh, food, uh, disease, spread of disease, uh, quality of life, uh, and other, other things that were uh, specific to the, to the third world part of South Africa, um, which was so interesting. And, and I, I left South Africa, I had to leave South Africa because of my involvement in the anti-apartheid movement. Uh, but years later, I'm reminded of it because as we've started in the United States to talk about population health, I am very aware of, the, uh, of, of, of how strongly we felt at the time that the, the impact of, of socioeconomic factors, uh, social determinants, as we talk about it here in the U.S. now, uh, had on the health of, uh, of South African people. And so it, it, it's, it's actually a full circle for me. And it's a very exciting circle because I kind of feel like I, 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 uh, I've forgotten, I, I hadn't actually translated those elements of population health or community health into a first world country. But today with, you know, with the emphasis on population health now, I'm, I'm actually thinking a lot about how we apply community health elements, public health elements and population health elements to improving the health of all people in the United States today. So yeah. it's, a, it's actually a very exciting sort of cycle or cycle of life in a way for me. So. Yeah, no, I don't that's know if that makes sense. Does it, it does. does it make sense? It does. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, as you're describing what your experience and your life has brought you through your perspectives, you know, from the medical training and your career growth, um, it does feel that, you know, the perspective has brought on this like, yeah, it's a full circle, right? You, you, you needed to touch even though some of those points and perspectives to face against could have been frustrating, some of at times liberating. Um, you know, having this vast experience of health from all these different dimensions is important to, to view this circle of life, which uh, which is uh, a circle of life, but also the phenomenon of health, technology, medical life, as, as you know, and as I've seen, is coming, um, you know, full circle. And Dr. Goldsmith, along those lines, I'd love to hear a little bit on, you know, this, this circle and like what's happening today. You know, what do you see starting to become in place um, from a health, technology, medical, you know, all these different dimensions. What's happening today or, or what is, is, is capturing your attention, is captivating you today and has your passion in regards to health? There's so many things going on. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about how your background has led to your current focus and what are you focusing on today that really captivates you? So one of the things I think a lot about today is process improvement, how, mm. we, how we use clinical decision support to improve processes. And I actually think you have to think about it at both the patient-specific level, uh, a patient-focused uh, improvement process around that journey that all of us go through as patients. But I think what we also need to do is, is look at population journeys. And so uh, my, my focus is very much around how we actually bring new processes to life at both the level of the individual patient and their families and, uh, and, and at the population level. And, and so there are a lot of good examples. I mean, you, you can think about a patient who has diabetes journey. Uh, at the uh, at the pa at the patient level, there's 
you know, trying to improve their condition, making sure that they uh, that they eat well, that the hemoglobin A1C remains in a at, at least in a in a good range, or we get it back to a good range, so that they 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 as individuals can be as healthy as possible. But then there's the population side of it. How do mm-hmm. we start preventing diabetes? How do we how do we t- treat people at a population level who have the potential to develop diabetes to improve the way that they eat as a population, as an entire community? Uh, and, and how do we bring new resources to, to their world? Exercise is a good example. Wearable devices is a good example of, of things that can help people, uh, digital, you know, uh, digital therapies of some sort mm. that encourage people to do the right things, making sure that the food and availability of good food uh, is, is, is available to children in schools, ultimately to adults as well. Mm. So, I, you know, to me, I think that that's, that, that's one of the areas that I focus on. One of the things that's really bringing uh, an, a real interest to population health uh, and, and health in general is actually artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And, and while it's not a new idea, as you know, it's been around for quite a while, uh, it's, it's really the resources that are now available, particularly the cloud, particularly the power of, of computing, the ability to manage big data, that it is really starting to change uh, healthcare uh, through AI, and and so when you think of AI from a population health point of view, uh, it's it's really about having uh, the the knowledge of the, uh, the 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 health description, if you want, of that population, right down to the individual level, as well as the public description of that population, all stored together so that they can be compared. So a good example. Going back to the, uh, the food example and diabetes, a, a good example would be uh, a knowledge of the kinds of food resources in a particular community. You know, are people eating a lot of fast food because that's all that's available? Uh, a, a knowledge of the socioeconomic status of a community that would help us understand what what resources we could bring to that population, uh, to that you know that community. And so, I think suddenly it's a very exciting time where I think AI is is beginning to shape how we think uh, mm. about uh, that, that intelligence and understanding of a community that, to shape how we deliver healthcare, which is love really it. very exciting. It is, yeah. No, Dr. Goldsmith, it's really exciting, and you know, you're hitting on so many different, you know, um, uh, potential use cases here. Use cases, and obviously, you know, you're at the forefront of of, of the most applicable use cases in action and health, which is super, super fascinating. Uh, and then with, you know, social determinants of health and, you know, reaching out to the family, the friends, the community and fostering community, and, and now all the generated data that's coming through systems like yours and, and um, other systems. So IOT data, you know, medication, food, uh-huh. the food example you mentioned, um, you know, the, uh, the patient journey, the transitions of care, you know, that, data and how um, people are also applying data on social media, you know, through, through even LinkedIn now, there's a lot more health and well-being data being posted. And uh, obviously, you guys at Microsoft on LinkedIn now, but there's uh, there's so many di- different data streams that you guys are getting access to. What other kind of obviously, you know, known use cases out in the market are you guys doing? What, what are there some, I, I just love to hear some more use cases where AI and other intelligent systems machine learning can be applied and, 
you know, it feels like we're just scratching the surface, but maybe uh, catch us up and modern, modernize our thinking about how we, we really should be thinking about AI in, in different dimensions of health. So I think there's two elements to think about AI. Mm. I, think, I, I think you have to think about AI from the uh, digital transformation perspective. And mm-hmm. I think that's, a, to me, I use in my head a maturity model for AI. Um, you know, and, and I think at the starting point, it, it really depends on your organization uh, and or your community, actually. But, but getting a foundation for AI in place, which means... Uh, making sure that you've got all the data sets that you need, all the data uh, available to you through interoperability. Things, you know, there's there's now standards that allow this this to happen. But creating the the data foundation for AI is is important. Now, one approach is just build the foundation and then think about what you want to do from an AI perspective. Um, not a great approach. I don't. I'm not sure. I, I, it's one approach, but it's not probably not the. the the, the best approach because often when you come back to using that data, you find that either the data isn't as clean or isn't as available as you'd hoped, or it isn't the right data that you need. The other way to do this is to think is to start small and think about particular use cases that are transformational, and and I'll t- talk about that in a moment, and mm-hmm. then build the found build a partial foundation with a perspective to having a complete foundation in place. You know, so you, so you don't limit yourself to a, a narrow uh, repository, but you build it in an open way so that you can expand it as needed. So mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the foundational element of it. Mm-hmm. But, but the first area that's clear is how do you take what we currently do with business intelligence, BI, and move it into the AI world? Mm-hmm. And, and that often is operational, but it can have some clinical elements too. So, so one of the things that people often talk about now are gaps in care. That, and we've done a lot of reporting and BI, business analytics, and business intelligence that 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 shows either scores that people have created or maps out or diagrams out where the gaps in care are. Um, but I do think that uh, as you start to apply AI to that area from both an operational or from three areas, from an operational point of view, from a financial point of view, and from a clinical point of view, uh, there are many areas that that are very exciting. So things like reducing length of stay, reducing readmissions. These are all things we've spoken about and everyone's talking about today. But those those are the first elements of transformation. As you move up this maturity model, the next level that I think has taken off like wildfire in the last year or so, and I think is going to has enormous enormous potential is diagnostics. Oh. Uh, we, we've started to see uh, many areas of uh, diagnostics that that are actually in some cases uh, better than uh, what what uh, human sort of intelligence is able to do when you augment that with AI. So great examples are in the radiology space, and I saw a recent study where when you're looking at a mammogram that's not an obvious mammogram, so it's not an obvious tumor, but it's just a change in density, the the ability of the computer or the AI with computing to look at the entire image for all of the elements uh, of, of change in density is actually a very strong and if not a better predictor than what a human the human radiologist is able to do. Uh, and but I don't think this means that we're replacing radiologists. I think what it means to me is that we're augmenting them to do better, to work on the areas that they can be most important at, including things like uh, you know treatment, diagnosis, uh, relating to patients, and things like that. The, 
The next level up from the, from that for me in a maturity model is what we started talking about briefly earlier, and that's starting to use um, AI in, in in diagnostics that is not just the physical diagnostic, like a like a, a diagnostic test, like a like radiology, but is actually starting to take data from all sorts of areas, uh, both you know, like you mentioned, wearable data, personal data. EMR data that's related to your particular disease, uh, rela- social data that's coming from social media and social areas, uh, personal data, other data that you have, and bringing it all together uh, in, a, in a powerful diagnostic tool. And a good example there is things like rare disease, which have been difficult to diagnose. When you, when you bring many factors together, both phenotypic and genot- genotype data, together, you can improve that diagnosis as well. And we're starting to see that, particularly things like rare disease, where, you know, the doctors don't necessarily aren't aren't, aren't that familiar with some of the diseases. And by the way, I should say, in general, doctors are becoming less and less familiar with the new discoveries because medical information is now being doubled at such a rapid rate. Just by way of example, when I was at medical school, uh, medical data uh, doubled every seven to ten years. It's doubling at seventy every seventy three days right now. So think about what it takes. You, what you need is a training in AI as a doctor in order to be able to use uh, AI to augment your own uh, understanding of things. And then the sort of the top of the maturity model is really starting to look at things like social determinants, where you start bringing in lots of big public data into that environment. You could imagine the same thing with disease distribution and pandemics. Uh, those are all things that could be supported by uh, by AI. That, that, so that, that's how I think about AI from a maturity model perspective. But I actually think AI, digital transformation alone is not enough. And Microsoft actually has taught me quite a lot about this because they've developed what they call, uh, they, they have an AI set of pillars when thinking about AI problems. And digital transformation is only one of those pillars. The other pillars are you, you need to think about is what kinds of coalitions do we need to form to in order to be able to have an impact on using AI. And the, the, the coalitions could involve data mm-hmm. that, that I was talking about, but the coalitions could also involve uh, organizations that are important to this process of using AI for diagnosis. So a good example mm-hmm. of a coalition would be, uh, a, we talked about radiology as transformative, but you need a coalition with the right radiology organizations and associations mm-hmm. like the American College of Radiology in order to do that. And then the third pillar is skills retraining. I just don't think yet that nurses and doctors are at a point where they understand AI well enough to use it effectively. So what we what we really need to do is help train doctors and nurses specialists in in what the you know both the pros and the cons of AI mm-hmm. because it's not it's not a it it need, it, it 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 can it ha, it obviously ha, can have bias it it needs to be thought through rigorously it needs to be like any other science needs to be thought through very carefully and part of that is is retraining both clinicians as well as informatics people to become data scientists. Mm-hmm. And then the last element of the Microsoft pillars, which I found very useful to think about, is what is the societal impact of what you're about to do? So rare disease is a great example where you could have enormous impact. Um, one good example, Microsoft is working on AI for improving diagnosis of sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS, 
and we're working in the Seattle area to do that. And we are, we're finding all sorts of associations that might not have been thought of before. Mm. Uh, so, so it's just a very exciting field. But right. having, having this kind of framework to think about things, you know, for me has helped me a lot to really see the, you know, to, to, to get my hands around the enormity of what AI might mean. Mm. I, I love it, Dr. Goldsmith. So a couple of things that I really appreciate is laying out the, the framework, these pillars, and it's almost like a, you know, an ascension level of, the, of, a, of a mental model of how we should be thinking about this progression of AI, which we're, you know, we're, we're really starting to get into that area and then leveraging all this data and these use cases to really just change lives. And that's what it's all about, right? It's about, it's about people helping people, but, you know, technology helping people help people. And you guys are doing that incredibly. So it's, it's just super fascinating. You know, one, one question I have before I ask you the, the bigger grand question of, you know, what's the future of health look like to Dr. Goldsmith is um, the, the way of thinking of, obviously you're, you know, you're near Boston. Um, I'm here in Silicon Valley. I was just in Seattle for, for a little bit a few weeks ago. AI gets thrown out a lot, right? And there's machine learning, there's deep learning, there's chatbots, there's natural language processing, there's also people that say we are 10 years away from a true from true AI or 20 years away or um, if we're really at AI, we'll be um, we're you know a year or two away from being enslaved and you know having 28 year old looking Arnold Schwarzenegger um, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Terminators you know uh, knocking on our door. I mean, all kidding aside. How, how does one tell? Um, what's the viewpoint of how does one look like? Whether you're in a startup, a technology company, a venture capitalist looking at investing in AI, um, what's the difference between you know data science, machine learning, you know the, the the data science side versus like true AI? Like how do you how how should one think about it in terms of defining it? Like that's AI, that's not AI. Um, so, just, sorry for 17 questions in one there, but it's just no, no, it's fine. What's the, so, what's the modern way of thinking about AI and, and how to how to tell true AI versus um, something that you know, needs to grow X, Y, and Z to be true AI? So I, I think AI means a lot of things, right? Uh, and, right. and I think what we're talking about really is what what people have called deep learning, the kinds right. of things that. Watson and IBM sort of made popular the mm-hmm. kinds of things we're talking about today, and 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 I think that to me uh, we 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 have to be really really careful about one thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people say AI is not understandable or deep learning when you do it at you know a, so BI is understandable because you can graphically display things. There there are some models with AI that are, are simpler and you can understand them. But the kinds of deep learning that a lot of people are now applying to healthcare, they, they, they seem to be suggesting that it's beyond the human mind and only the computer and, and computing can do this and you just got to kind of trust it. And I think that's dangerous. I don't think that's true at all. I think that we are only just beginning to see the emergence of AI models, deep learning models, that are that do let you visualize the impact, the, the basis for this. So a good example would be, I mean, if you, if you simply said, a computer turned around to a doctor and said, this patient needs XYZ treatment. Uh, mm-hmm. I, any doctor would say, explain why you've come to that conclusion. And, and, and right now, what, what we kind of are in is a phase where people are saying, no, no, this is deep learning. You can't understand it. We have to get beyond that. 
We have mm-hmm. to get to a model, and we are, we're moving there very fast, to a model that, that actually says, I can decompose what you came up with as a mm. computing model and very, very easily understand the justification for a particular diagnosis or a particular treatment or a particular suggestion or a particular operation or whatever it is. Um, and, and, and that's where I think we are today. And so I think, the, I think we're kind of, we, we were just coming into the top of this hype curve, if you think about it, mm-hmm. where the hype has been huge. It's really AI is already taking off, there's no doubt. Lots of models are being applied and we're just starting to see reality set in. And we'll probably see, a, and if, if I were an investor or someone like that looking at this, I would probably want to watch this drop that's going to happen in the next year or so right. of uh, enthusiasm where people are skeptical suddenly, worried about it. It's going to drop below where it should be. So this hype curve, if you're familiar with these hype curves, they go very high and then they drop very low. And then eventually it comes back to a middle point somewhere where where we will be in the, in the next couple of years. And, then, and so I think we're at the almost at the top of the hype now. And, and I think part of that hype is that one is that computers understand more than we do. They don't. We Computers, AI should definitely be understandable to all of us as clinicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other part of the hype is that it, AI doesn't work for everything. And you've got to be, and you can't take the same model and apply it because when you build an AI model with a particular population, it might have an enormous bias there towards that population. Uh, and it may work for you in that population, but then you take it to a new population and that bias becomes very, very clear. And so we have to be careful about those things. And, we, and Microsoft, actually, our president, Brad Smith, uh, and a team are writing a lot about this. And I think we're going to see more and more about this. So I would I would certainly look at people who are thinking of AI more realistically. Yeah. Uh, this helps. I think this helps a lot of our listeners. Yeah. I mean, a lot, you know, work in AI, build AI. And so, you know, having this uh, mental model for thinking about AI is, is super important. So I appreciate you letting that out and, and kind of teaching us about that, Dr. Goldsmith. And, um, you know, one thing I want to be sensitive to your time, I could probably geek out with you all day long, but, you know, I'm sure both of us have, have to do other things at some point today. Uh, um, my last question for you, or very, almost very last question is the future of healthcare right, according to Dr. Goldsmith. And I know a lot of what you laid out serves as that foundation and keep going. We can kind of see where this is going and how it can lead to a healthier populations. But maybe you can illustrate for us, uh, you know, what we see happening in the future over, you know, what time horizon uh, when, it, when it comes to uh, health, health technology, and some of the things that we're talking about. So technology is just an enabler. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it really, healthcare is all about people and processes, and, and, and technology is going to make those processes better, faster, higher quality, safer. Uh, you know, those are the things that we see happening. So you really have to look at where healthcare is going. And, mm. I, and I think what's clear is that we're at the end of a phase. I, I, first of all, I think healthcare will evolve forever. So mm-hmm. I don't think, I think this is just the next phase that I'm talking about. But the last hundred years, and that's a, a long time. So I think we're, we're, you know, it's been this way for a long time. Health has been delivered in hospitals. And that's primarily because the, the, the majority of the diseases that were treated up until 15 years ago were very often diseases that uh, were involved infections that, first of all, couldn't be treated in the early 1900s. And then suddenly we had uh, the, you know, the new antibiotics being found, discovered, 
the, the, the new vaccines being discovered, and these diseases became treatable. And, and hospitals were a fine place to convalesce in, to give people medicine, and hopefully get them out of the hospital uh, in most cases. But what's happened as we've seen this, uh, that ha you know, so we now have a, a different population. We have, we have highly treatable infectious diseases, and, uh, and, and, and we have a new set of chronic diseases that are no longer diseases that can be treated and you'll be better. They are diseases that you have to live with, whether they're mm. rare diseases, whether they're cancers, uh, whether they're other forms of chronic disease, they become lifelong diseases. And I think the, that healthcare is going to change so that it now looks at the patient in their entirety across the continuum. So it's no longer healthcare focused on the hospital, but it becomes healthcare focused on the patient. And when you do that, it's going to be healthcare delivered in many settings, whether it be at work, in the home, and and sometimes it, it for moments in the hospital as needed. And I think that's the new healthcare. And I think AI is going to support, you know, will be will be designed to support healthcare across the continent. So that's I love how it. I, I love it. No, Dr. Goldsmith. Yeah, no, the, it's great. Yeah, no, it's great laying, laying this out and hearing about this paradigm shift and, you know, the new ways of thinking. And so it definitely feels like it's going, you know, deep and wide. And I appreciate you laying this out, uh, Dr. Goldsmith. Uh, um, my very last question for you is, you know, you've seen a lot and done a lot in health. I can imagine, and, and obviously being at Microsoft, you know, such a fast-moving, growing, huge organization, resilience is 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 important probably for your role, but for a lot of our listeners' roles, right? And so we talk a lot about resilience and health, personal health these days. What's what's one or two things you do on a personal health basis that you do to stay healthy, to stay feeling good, to stay resilient and, and at your top of the game? So I first of all, I've worn a wearable device. I wear a Fitbit, but it could be any device. Mm -hmm. And I've worn that for nearly 10 years now. Wow. And 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 I and I think that's important because to me, uh, one thing I didn't say earlier, another piece of of healthcare is that we we typically compare people to the overall population, and I'm excited about the future for myself and for others because I can now compare myself to myself. Mm -hmm. So, and I'll give you what I'll tell you what I mean by that. Uh, if my heart rate went to uh, eighty over to to eighty beats per minute. For the, if I walked into a doctor's office and said, I, I think my heart rate's fast, and they felt it at 80 beats per minute, they'd say, no, that's not terribly fast. Normal 72, you know, 70 beats per minute, you're fine. But I know my heart rate runs at 50 beats per minute. Mm. And so knowing that it's increased, or my blood pressure has increased, or, or my temperature is different. So each of us is different. You know, the average is only the average. No one is average. Everyone is not average. That's that's pretty much the definition of average. And mm -hmm. and so being able to compare yourself. So one of the things I've been doing is is storing a backlog of data, lots of data about myself, uh, in order to understand it. And so I have a very I have a good sense of what my sort of normal activity is, my normal data is, my normal my my normal illnesses are. One of the things I do a lot of is I walk. I try and do 10,000 steps or more every day. Mm. Uh, it's often walking the dog. I have a dog and I walk the dog. And that's that's really is important. I also try and I, I think just walking alone is not enough. And I monitor my sleep. I make sure I have good sleep. I've been trying to make sure that I get the eight hours of sleep, which I know is good for me. And and I, I do a bit of sport. I play tennis. And mm. 
and have been doing that. But I and and try and eat better as well. And so you know, for me, that's that, that's. The, but I do encourage people to to understand your own baseline because mm-hmm. that's that's ultimately is going to be the most important diagnostic tool. You have. I love it. I love it. You know, Dr. Grossman, this is this is great and, and super powerful. Um, my uh, super last question. Um, so first of all, I, I want to say thank you so much for, for, you know, sharing your story, your truth with us, your, your progression and your career, the dimensions across from, from South Africa to the U.S. and abroad and all the different dimensions from a, from a hospital setting to a community setting that you've, you've done work in and continue to do work in and then bring in this experience um, with a huge scalable technology way. It's just I love the combination and so thanks for sharing, you know, all of these pieces with us as well as, you know, how we serve, um, we serve up the future and how what you're working on is serving up the future in an interesting, very unique way, not to mention teaching us <laughs> and catching us up on a modern mindset for AI. Um, our listeners, so if our listeners would like to get in touch with you or if someone would like to reach out to you on social media or directly, what would be a good way to do so? Oh, with pleasure. I think my email is probably the easiest to use. You can get me on LinkedIn. So it's Cliff Gold on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. You can get me there if you need me. I've got a Facebook page. But I but I think the easiest way is to use my Microsoft email, which is Cliff Gold, C-L-I-F-G-O-L-D at Microsoft.com. Perfect. Perfect. Well, uh, Dr. Goldsmith, again, this was super fun, super interesting having you on. And I appreciate it. I, I feel like I'm caught up in this area a lot more um, than I've ever been before. And so this is this was super profound. I'm sure our listeners are going to have a joy listening to this. Uh, to our listeners out there, again, this is the Pop Health Show. And the show is for anyone that has a strong passion for making people healthier in this world. Uh, Dr. Goldsmith, again, thank you for being on. This was great. Anthony, thank you so much. Appreciate the opportunity to talk to your listeners, to talk to you, um, and look forward to an ongoing dialogue. Absolutely. Absolutely. Same same here, Dr. Goldsmith. Same here. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you.